most of the culture shapers, I think, in the kingdom of God um, who do what they do because of unique circumstances that God brought in their lives are shaping culture in less visible ways, but no less to the glory of God. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to today's episode of Christ in Culture. I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, in honor of Mother's Day, we're going to talk to Dr. Amanda O'Quinn about Christian women throughout history who have shaped culture in some remarkable ways. After that, Dr. Keithley will tell you what's on his bookshelf right now. But first, we're going to begin today's episode with something a little bit different. Today, and in the coming weeks, we want to highlight students, alumni, and friends of Southeastern Seminary who work in everyday vocations. And we want to share how they're using their work to help fulfill the Great Commission. The segment is called Together We Go, and today's guest is Sherelle Duxworth. I'm currently getting my doctorate degree in systematic theology here at Southeastern. My time at SCBTS has primarily encouraged me to be intentional with my cultural engagement. One of the things about Southeastern is, although it's theological, it is very practical. And so because I'm teaching, I'm often reminded to be engaging my students culturally with what I'm learning in the classroom, but also in a practical sense. The biggest way you can pray for me is that I continue to serve as a compassionate teacher, a teacher that's gracious and that's kindly uh, revealing truth to her students. I'm Sherelle Duxworth, and together we go. Sherelle Duxworth serves as a sociology instructor at Lewisburg College in Lewisburg, North Carolina, and she's working on a Ph.D. in systematic theology here at Southeastern Seminary. Hey, Southeastern family, this May we want to ask you to consider supporting Southeastern by praying, sending, and giving. We want to ask you to remember these three dates. On May 13th, we will celebrate graduation on our campus. Please pray for the 273 new Southeastern graduates as they go well-equipped to wherever God calls them. Sunday, May 15th is Seminary Sunday on the SBC calendar. Please take this opportunity to share Southeastern with others and to recommend us to any men and women seeking to pursue theological education. Finally, on May 19th, we will recognize our charter date with a day of giving. Generous donors have provided a $25,000 matching gift challenge for this day. Please consider giving to support our students and remember that every dollar given is one less dollar a student will need to pay in tuition. So this may join us in our mission to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission by praying for our graduates, sending students to be equipped, and by giving. Because you pray, send, and give, we are going. We at the Center for Faith and Culture not only have the Christ and Culture podcast, we also have the Christ and Culture blog. And in a recent article, Dr. Amanda O'Quinn discussed five Christian women who shaped culture. 
Today, we're delighted to have her on the podcast to discuss these women and more. Dr. O'Quinn is Associate Professor of History at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the College at Southeastern. She holds a Ph.D. in History from the University of Arkansas. Dr. O'Quinn, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, let's talk about the Christian women you highlighted in your article. Who was Clotilda? So Clotilda was one of those barbarian queens, and that sounds like an oxymoron to us, right? But she was a queen of the barbarian. So she was in a barbarian queen. Um, she and her husband were in power in what was called Gaul. So Gaul, part of the Frankish kingdom, the area that we would now call France, um, during the time period after the Roman Empire. So when the Roman Empire is turning into Europe, pretty much. And so Christianity had not really spread up to that area necessarily yet. But she is married to the Clovis, who is the king of Burgundy, the king of the Franks and the ruler of Gaul um, in the, around the 5th century. Um, and she is a Christian. She had become a Christian under her grandfather, who was, who was an Aryan Christian, I guess. And I don't, my church history is not as, as firm as yours, probably. But that's where she was. Um, their dynasty was the Merovingians um, that survived around 200 years. And she is credited with convincing her husband, Clovis, to accept Christianity. And, of course, during this time, if the king accepts Christianity, there's the Christianization of the populace. And we don't think that means everyone got a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But it does mean that that's the favored religion. And it certainly means that Christianity now has the opportunity uh, to flourish in a way that it would have been struggled with Definitely. before. Definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the next person you mentioned in the article, I think I'm a little more familiar with her. Uh, you talk about Catherine von Bora. Tell everybody who she was. So Catherine von Bora is uh, best known as the wife of Martin Luther, right? Yes. And yeah. so what was she before she was Luther's wife? Right. So she was a nun, and she was an example of a cloistered woman, who we could refer to nuns as sometimes, who she went to the cloister when she was just three years old. So her mother had died. Her parents weren't wealthy, but they had some means. And so rather than be raised by the single father, he didn't know what he was going to do with her, educate her, whatever, she is taken to the cloister. And so that would happen sometimes for women from that class in exchange for a donation to the convent, she was then raised in the convent and raised to become a nun. So she, it's not like she decided to take uh, the vow at one point in time. She went there when she was three. So whenever I hear the word cloistered, I think isolated. Mm -hmm. right. So I'm a little surprised then to find out that she and other nuns have embraced the Reformation. Right. How in the world would she even know about that? You know, I think a few years um, after... Luther published his 95 Thesis. So Catherine was 18 years old when he published the 95 Thesis. And a few years later, she and a group of 10 other nuns somehow heard about that. I mean, I guess word traveled. Even though they weren't going out a bit, people were coming in and word traveled. And so she and some other nuns decided the monastic life was not God's only path for women and was not the path that they wanted. And so she wrote a letter to Luther asking him to help them escape, basically. Let's talk about the escape. That sounds <laughs> it's fun. interesting, right? Yes. Yeah. How did they escape? So this is great. So on Easter of 1523, so next year will be 500 years, right? Um, you have 11 nuns who were hidden in a cooperative merchant's wagon. I think he had barrels of herring, some kind of fish. You bring the fish in, you take the nuns out. That's basically what happened. And so you have these 11 women that escaped 
in the back of that wagon. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so she. So they've escaped the convent. Right. And she's decided that um, she wants to marry Luther. Yes. Right. And and at this time, uh, how old is she and how old is Luther? Isn't Luther almost 40 years old by this time? Yeah, when they got married, she was 26 and he was 42. Oh, my goodness. And so it was considered when they came out, I mean, for a woman to do that was very shameful, right? You have to run away for one thing, right? And you've been married to God. So it's kind of like the society views you as an adulteress, right? When we think of, oh, the Reformation, well, that's very Catholic still. You know, people have those leanings. Um, and so most of these women could not go home. I, Catherine von Bora, I don't know if her father was even still alive. She had nowhere to go. And so Luther found husbands for all of these nuns. And s- somehow in that, I don't know all the details, he and Catherine ended up marrying. So they get married. They had quite a few kids, did they not? They did. I think six, I want to say, uh, maybe three or four of which survived to adulthood. Yeah. yeah, there needs to be a movie about her life. That's, yeah, there that, does. That's yeah. just a wild story. Yeah, it is. And my understanding is it was a very happy marriage, and she was a real contributor to the home and to his well-being. Right, she was. And, you know, I think that probably if you know much about Martin Luther, he wasn't always the easiest person to deal with, right? He was pretty set in his, I think, already set in his ways, right? He's Plus, he's 42 when they get married. But she's a nun who orchestrates an escape from a convent, right? This is not someone who feels like she has nothing to contribute or no ideas of her own. Um, one story that I like to tell is that Luther sometimes, and he was writing, he got so involved in what he was doing he, he wouldn't eat. He wouldn't sleep. He was just, you know, would go for days possibly. And so at one point in time, he was locked in his room for three days. I don't know what he was working on. And after that, she had the door taken off the hinges so that that couldn't happen again. Um, so she had ways of help. You know, she was helping him, right? She was dealing with Martin Luther and she was helping him. But yes, she really managed a large household. He had a lot of students, of course, that came all the time. Um, and money was always an issue. So she did very well at managing all that extraordinary, just amazing. So the third person you mentioned is Harriet Tubman. And this is a name that many of our listeners may find familiar. How did she shape culture? Right. Well, Harriet Tubman, who was initially named Araminta Ross and changed her own name, was from Maryland. Um, And she was a slave. So Maryland would have been the Upper South, right? She's close. She was just uh, 90 miles from Philadelphia, which is free territory. So you have to think that slaves living that upper part of the South, you can walk 90 miles. We don't think you can, but you know in the 19th century people did that. So that was close enough. And what was happening at that time in that part of the Upper South is that a lot of the plantation owners were changing their crops from tobacco to wheat. Wheat was more profitable and it also didn't require as many workers. And so one of the things that people were doing was selling off slaves down south, quote unquote. And that, of course, to a slave was a terrible prospect. So even as a slave in Maryland, you heard horror stories about slaves in Mississippi and Alabama. The last thing you wanted was to be sold down south. And so that happened to Harriet Tubman's, a couple of her sisters were sold. One was um, her child had to be left behind, which, of course, I'm sure was a heartbreaking situation for them. And so that happened. She wasn't sold at that time, but there's, there was another round of selling that seemed to be coming a few years later when she was in her late 20s. And at that time, she made her own escape to Philadelphia. So she goes to Philadelphia. Um why then, as a free slave, mm-hmm. is she significant and impacts culture? Right. So she is able to, going to Philadelphia, she gets involved with something called the Underground Railroad, Railroad, uh, which you, listeners may be familiar with. And that was a 
group, basically, of both whites and blacks who helped uh, slaves escape. Once they got out from their plantation or wherever they were, they got in a certain place. There were certain places they could go until they got to the north, sometimes all the way to Canada on that. Not a real railroad, of course, but just a uh, way stations, basically. And so she gets involved in that. She goes back to Maryland a number of times. I think she ends up rescuing almost 100 slaves who want to be free. And she escorts them back um, to freedom in Philadelphia and then from there to different places. So how risky was that? What would have happened to her and others if they had been caught? You know, I'm trying to think. I'd have to ask my husband, who's a historian, where the fugitive slave law stood at this time. It wouldn't have been good, that's for sure, right? It was one thing to be an escaped slave yourself. It was quite another to be coming back on a regular basis, stealing what was considered at that time legally property, of course, right? If you were a horse thief, you'd have been treated a certain way. If you were a slave thief, you were treated a certain way as well. And so she would have been considered a thief in that regard. I would assume it would have been the death penalty for her. I don't At least, at least she would have been sold down south, which might have been um, equal to that uh, in her mind. So she she risk a lot. These are all extraordinary women that you have chosen to write about. You also highlight a woman who lives right now, Joni Erickson Tata. And why did you select her? Yeah, I wanted to kind of, um, as I was selecting these women, talk about women over different time periods in history. So I was looking for someone contemporary, and of course there's a lot that could be chosen. But Joni Erickson Tata was a woman who's now in her late 60s. She may have turned 70 by now. Um, who suffered a life-altering diving accident when she was 17. If you know her story, she was paralyzed from the neck down. Um, was a Christian or considered herself to be a believer at that time, had a lot of questions for God, of course, about why this happened. And so she lived the rest of her life uh, paralyzed. So Joni has now been paralyzed from the neck down. Right. Um, there's more to her story, though. Right. So she really, after getting over her bitterness and her questioning, she really uses her position as a disabled person to advocate for people that our society might view as dispensable, um, particularly the disabled, the elderly, and then also the unborn. She's become a, a huge advocate for the unborn um, throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. So I think that's probably her major her major contribu- contribution. Um, she fights what she called the, quote, better off dead than disabled, end quote, mentality, which kind of permeates the euthanasia advocacy mm-hmm. idea. Um, and so she's really pushed back against that and just emphasized the dignity and worth of all human beings. Some of our listeners may be thinking, well, you know, these women were exceptional, but I, I'm just an ordinary person. How can I shape culture? How would you respond to them? Well, I think it's easy a lot of time to think as men and women, but maybe particularly as women, um, that how can we be culture shapers? One thing we have to realize is that most women, like most men, are going to shape culture in ways that will never be singled out, will never be rewarded, will never be maybe even noticed by the people, sometimes even the people right around you, right? (laughs) Let Mm -hmm. alone by a historian writing a history book. So most of the culture shapers, I think, in the kingdom of God Um, who do what they do because of unique circumstances that God brought in their lives are shaping culture in less visible ways, but no less to the glory of God. Um, I was reading a book recently written by my pastor, actually called, uh, it's a book on heaven, where he talks about what we'll learn in heaven and learning all the stories of history. And he pointed out that God cherishes the obscure. God cherishes the obscure. And so many women do acts of service. You know, you're laboring in obscurity um, in a way that helping people in a humble way, oftentimes raising children, taking care of family, 
um, and helping people who can't repay you at that time. And I think that's what God values. And like I said, oftentimes in obscurity, but that is making culture, right? It is making culture. So we've been talking to Dr. Amanda Quinn and her blog post at the Christ and Culture website called Five Christian Women Who Shaped Culture. Dr. Quinn, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And now it's time for our segment called On My Bookshelf, where professors at Southeastern tell you what they are reading right now. So, Dr. Keithley, what is on your bookshelf today? Rod Dreher is one of the more interesting and provocative uh, Christian writers today. In fact, I had had to have to say that I don't agree with everything that Rod Dreher has written. But one of his books that I have found personally very helpful is a book called How Dante Can Save Your Life. And so if you've heard about Dante's uh, Inferno or Divine Comedy, but you, and you know that somehow it talks about what it's like, the nine levels of hell, or other things of that nature. And you know it's something written a thousand years ago, and it's, some of it's kind of bizarre, and it's about what it's like to go to heaven, hell, purgatory. Well, actually, it's so much more than that. And Dreer uh, writes it in a way that is semi-autobiographical. He is going through a personal spiritual crisis of his own. And so he talks uh, about how reading Dante impacted him. And so as he is telling about what he's going through and how he's reading Dante, he tells about, you know, that what Dante was going through was his own personal crisis. And that really what um, the Divine Comedy is, it's more than just a speculation about what life is going to be like after death. He's actually, uh, it, it is very much a political diatribe in which he is settling some scores. Uh, he is dealing with some of the political issues of the day. Uh, and in, and in, in between there, he's making some very profound and interesting spiritual points. And so if you've ever wanted to become familiar with uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, and, and uh, yet you knew you didn't have time uh, to read uh, the entire poem, or perhaps after you read it, you think, what in the world did I just go through? <laughs> Here is a great introduction that is approachable. Uh, it's edifying. It's interesting. Dreher is a great writer, and he really does draw out the spiritual lessons in a way that I find uh, very helpful. So the book is called uh, How Dante Can Save Your Life, the Life-Changing Wisdom of History's Greatest Poem, and it's by Rod Dreher, and Dreher is spelled D-R-E-H-E-R. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Keithley, for that really interesting recommendation. I hope our listeners will check that out. Thank you all for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, do us a huge favor. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, brief review, and also share the episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.